And with your spirit, glory to you, O Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Have have you ever wanted to die? I don't mean like the flu or a bad cold where you're just miserable and the Sudafed ain't kicking in and you just wish you'd rather be dead. I don't mean that. I mean like for real wanted to die. Maybe you suffer from clinical depression or other emotional distress. This is something that you struggle with very often. Maybe it was after a a, a big tragedy, loss of a spouse or a child or dear friend loss of a job or a major life transition that didn't turn out, serious disappointments. Maybe it was a a devastating health diagnosis and you looked toward your future and it looked so bleak, you said to yourself very seriously, I don't know that I want to keep doing this. I I think the alternative just might actually be better. I get that this is a pretty dark place to start at 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning, but give me a little space here. There was a news story came out this week about a girl from 
Brussels or Antwerp in Belgium. She was a survivor of that terrorist attack back in 2016. Remember when they bombed the airport? Don't feel bad, I didn't remember either. But it happened in 2016, and that shows you how hardened we've all become to tragedy like this in the world. She was 17, she was on a school trip. They were flying from Brussels to Paris or something, and um, they bombed the airport she was in. And she saw some horrible, horrible things. Several of her friends got killed, all kinds of people hurt, blown to bits around her. It would be like waking up in a war zone. She was so affected by this tragedy. She's been in and out of mental health care facilities ever since, and, and six, seven years later, her, her psychiatrist just kind of shrugged and said, yeah, you're not fixable. You're unhealable. We agree with you. We think you'd be better off dead than to be this miserable. And so she was euthanized. 23. Now, please don't hear me wrong. Terrorism, grave evil, trauma, serious wounds, no doubt. No doubt. But I simply can't bring myself, and I suspect that I'm not quite alone in this, to imagine that, that one experience so bad, so early on, simply cancels out the rest of a life. That it would simply be better for that person not to live. The lepers, both in the first reading and in today's gospel, are in a position where no doubt, at least at times, they would have thought themselves better off dead. In the case of Naaman, the Syrian, this would have been mostly about um, position, right? He's a really important general. I don't know, this would be like Patton or something. Like, really, really important military leader, but nobody can get near him because of his leprosy. So when Elisha sends him down into the waters and is able to have him cleansed of his leprosy, he literally gives him a new lease on life. And Naaman, recognizing what's happened, recognizing what the God of Israel has done for him, converts. Remember, he goes into the Jordan, and of course, he didn't want to. He said, this is really dumb. We have better, better water back in Syria, right? But Elisha presses, no, it has to be the Jordan. Why the Jordan? Well, the Jordan was what the people passed through to get into the promised land. The Jordan's what we still pass through to get into the promised land. For us, this is a kind of baptism. And he's cleansed. Stuff changes visibly on him, but also, and more importantly, invisibly. Which is why he insists on bringing back the dirt from there in the promised land. So that wherever he is now, he belongs to the land. The lepers in the gospel are in an even worse situation. They don't have military prowess or position, political prominence to, to forward their cause. They just have leprosy. And they are so hard up. We miss this. We miss this way too often. They're so hard up, they actually let a Samaritan into the gang. Now, our problem is we hear Samaritan, and because of that other story, we always hear attached to the word Samaritan the word good. 
You're not supposed to think good when you hear the word Samaritan. You're supposed to think bad, icky, stinky, dirty, immigrant, whatever, right? You're supposed to put bad adjectives before Samaritan, not good. And so the fact that these guys let somebody that they're literally not allowed to be around come and live with them in their little leper colony shows you just how hard up they are. No doubt, several times a day, most of them saying to themselves, I would be better off dead. Better off dead. But it turned out, even though they were no doubt convinced that they were unhealable, uncurable, untouchable, that there was one who could touch them, who would touch them, who could cure them, who could heal them. And when he did, he not only took away the disease on their skin, but he restored them to life in the community. What does he do? He says, go, show yourselves to the priests, and that will be proof enough for them. Now, the Samaritan, he can't go show himself to the priests. They won't let him into the temple. He can't be admitted to the very place that would restore him to life in the community. And his own community won't ever have him back because he left them to go be with those dirty Jews. Because it turns out they felt more or less the same about each other. It's funny how that works, isn't it? So he goes the one place he can to the one person he knows will accept him, will touch him, will restore him. The point of the story is not mostly that the person who remembered to be grateful was the one that we thought least likely. This isn't like when you're a kid and you invite your buddy over who comes from a a poorer family and your mom's always worried because his clothes are kind of ratty and he's the one who turns out to be more polite than you. That's not what this story is. This is a story about life and about death and about the lordship of Jesus the kingship of Christ over both. And that's important for us as we work through these weeks on the church's social teaching because at the bottom of it all, the bedrock of everything else we hold about how we're to live in society is the value, the dignity of every human life. Every single one, no matter how big or how small, how young or how old, how sick or how well, how rich or how poor, that there is nobody, nobody outside of God's domain, that there is nobody whose dignity is so diminished, so tarnished, they not only have a right to life and to protection under the law, but to dignity, to those things necessary for human decency and human flourishing to be able to participate in the society in which they live, to help build it up and to be built up themselves. In short, there is no one properly human who falls outside of the human family. Now, we humans are pretty good about dividing up the family tree. We're really good about saying, 
Samaritan Jew, Samaritan Jew, Samaritan Jew. Oh, there's a Catholic. We're real good about that. Chesterton says famously, right, that, that men seldom differ about those things they deem evil. They differ very much about those evils they deem excusable. Put another way, we're not really fighting very often about the things we think are right or wrong. We're fighting about the people we think are exceptions to the rule. When the church talks about life, our thoughts immediately go to abortion, and that's entirely understandable. We just decided there's a whole class of people that don't count. But that shouldn't really surprise us. We've chosen other classes of people to not count before. The people that lived on the land that we're standing on right now were one of those people that we, we, we bought and sold and pressed into service in another country. Yeah, that they didn't count for a while either. Some of us even, depending on where our people came from, when we first came here, didn't count. There, there is all kinds of ways for us to choose people who don't count, whose lives aren't worthy of protection, who we don't think really have dignity, or who are somehow less than us. Here's the problem. Once we start cutting boundaries around who gets protected and who doesn't, around whose life is of value and whose isn't, around who's worth saving and who's not, every one of us is up for grabs. Every form of criterion you use to determine who's in the in-group and who's in the out-group, you will always stand a chance of finding yourself in the out-group, which is really going to be unpleasant when you're no longer in the in-group. I'm not saying this primarily what, because of the upcoming midterms or anything like that. I'm saying this simply because if you want to get especially what we have to teach the next four weeks, if you want to really understand why we press on the preferential option for the poor, on care for creation, the environment that we live in, if you want to understand deeply what the church means by the solidarity of the human family, and what our rights and responsibilities really are toward each other, then you have to get this first. Otherwise, none of it will make any sense. It'll be so much noise. But if you can grasp this, that you and that every person you meet, every person you could ever meet, is worthy of God's living, suffering, and dying for, then you've begun to grasp why we hold what we do. This Wednesday, I turned 40 years old. I had a birthday. And kind of a nostalgic birthday, right? David says the span of a life is 70 years, 80 for those who are strong. I'm not especially strong, but I might be scrappy. But if I've got 40 more years, then I'm halfway through. And looking back on all that, and especially on the birthdays themselves, there is one that stands out in bold relief more than any other. I was five. And I had the great privilege for the first 21 years of my life of sharing my birthday with my grandmother, with my dad's mom, who lived with us for most of the time I was growing up. My grandma, she was my best friend, and in many ways still a real hero of mine. And when, because we shared these birthdays, especially when I was small, right, we'd have a combined birthday party, 
Um, the family would come over, and it typically wasn't on the birthday. It was on the Sunday closest to, so in the evening after Mass and kind of family dinner, we'd all get together, and there'd be, we wouldn't have cake, not a cake family. We are a cake family, but I don't like cake. I like pie, so we have birthday pies. My sister made these little apple pies last night. Dad's on a gluten-free kick. Too much YouTube. Anyway, he, 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 so she made these gluten-free mini pies, and he's so spazzy about this right now, he wouldn't eat the crust, so he just ate the filling out of the inside of the pie. I suppose age has its privilege. Anyway, this birthday with Grandma, when I was five, she'd have been 80 or so, I was sick. Not dying sick, not leper colony sick, but like I said at the beginning, real bad flu, real bad cold. And I'd been kept back in the back bedroom, so I didn't get the rest of the family sick. But for the night of the birthday party itself, they brought me out and they put me on a couch in the living room. We still have a picture of this. They put me on a couch in the living room and they kind of kept the party over there so nobody was right on top of me. But I still got to be at my own birthday party. They brought a bit of pie over for me to blow a candle out. But what I remember is, and the picture that stuck in my brain is of my grandmother on her own birthday, at 80 years old, for whom flu or the cold might be a real problem in a way it obviously wasn't going to be for little PJ. Her sitting down on the couch next to me and kind of snuggling up and just holding my hands and telling me stories until I fell asleep. The birthday I remember best, the memory I treasure most, was the least pleasant, the most debilitating. Now, I probably didn't think I would be better off dead, but I certainly thought I'd be better off well. Turns out, sick or well, rich or poor, born or unborn, depressed or not, life, all by itself, really is worth living.